Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? Good, good. We are so glad to have you this morning here at Community Baptist Church. And as you know, I am not Pastor Adam. So uh, my name is Dakota Burton. I am the kids pastor here, uh, and I'll be um, walking us through uh, the second part of our waiting room series. So I've got some big shoes to fill behind Pastor Adam. So Lord willing, uh, you know I'm a kids guy, so make sure you keep your expectations at a healthy level this morning. So... um, well, hey, I'm so glad you're here this morning, and I'm just thankful for Pastor Adam for giving me the opportunity to come and share God's Word with you. Um, I love kids' ministry, as you know. Um, There's just nothing like it on earth, you know, nothing like seeing a child understand true, deep biblical truths in their life and seeing God work that out in them. I mean, it's just, and to see that in the heart of a child, there's just nothing like it. You know, the Bible tells us to come to Jesus like a child. You know, and it's very humbling because you see that, you know, God doesn't say in the sense of imagination and wonder of like a child, but come to me like a child because child, a child needs everything from their parents. They cannot provide for themselves. And so just seeing that in kids' ministry really is a blessing. And so, um, as you know, we're in our second um, part of our Advent series. Uh, we talked about hope last week with uh, Pastor Adam. This week, we're going to be talking about peace. And so I did a little bit of uh, extra research on the Advent tradition and the themes of that. And um, one reason they would do it um, a long time ago was to prepare themselves for baptism. Uh, they would go over these things and prepare their hearts um, after being becoming saved. Um, but more recently, uh, it's become a tradition to prepare for the second coming of Christ. Prepare for this new life, this new journey you're on. Um, until Jesus comes back. And so today we're going to be talking about peace um, and what that looks like in the Bible. What does the Bible teach us about peace and what can we learn to have peace in this Advent time waiting on Jesus to return um, again. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and open them to Jeremiah uh, chapter 31. And we're going to be in verse 31 through 34. I'm going to be jumping around a lot in Jeremiah, so you can just go ahead and stay there. um, And I'll read out the rest of the text for you, um, so you don't have to keep turning uh, page after page. So go ahead and get there, and while you're turning there, uh, again, we're talking about peace this morning. And our understanding and our culture of peace, normally we we lean more towards the lack of conflict or the lack of war. And the Bible still uses peace in that way, but it gets at it a little bit more. And so the word peace in the Old Testament is, is called shalom. And shalom isn't just an outward peace of a lack of conflict, but it actually gets at an inward peace of being fully restored in your soul. Or fully to feel whole, to feel um, complete, to feel satisfied. And so the Bible gets at both of these. And the book of Jeremiah is a great book to go through learning and understanding this theology of peace. This inward peace and this outward peace. And it's going to be in, uh, both themes are going to be in our text this morning. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to get to share this with you today. Um, And so, to set the scene for the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, as you may know, is a prophet. 
And a prophet was used by God to speak to his people. And a prophet would give a foretelling message to talk about the future and a forth-telling message to preach to God's people, like turning and repenting from their sins. And God calls Jeremiah at a very young age, so young that when God calls him in the beginning of the book, he tells him, God, I'm not, surely you don't mean me because I'm, I'm so young. Um, and then God continues to tell him, you know, look, I, I knitted you together in your mother's womb. I have created, I've set you on this path to be my prophet. Um, and so in the early part of the book, um, we see that Jeremiah is stationed in the southern kingdom of God's people. So God's people had two different kingdoms. You had Israel and you had Jerusalem. And as you know, Isaiah was stationed in Israel, where Jeremiah was in the city of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of God's people. And so the southern kingdom at this time, it was not a good place for someone who was faithful to Christ because they were not living a faithful life to God. They didn't even look like followers of God. They were worshiping other gods. They were totally abandoning the Torah and God's law. And there was no evidence that they were even going to return back to the Lord. They were fully turned away from God and forsaken Him with no evidence of turning and changing. And so we see that and we see actually in the book of Habakkuk, who's, a little, who's in the southern kingdom a little bit before Jeremiah, is seeing the same things. And so nothing has changed during that time. And so God calls Jeremiah, and one of the first things he tells him in chapter 1, verse 10, uh, which is a very key passage in this book, um, he says that, See, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over the nations and kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Now, if you're reading that, and you're like, oh boy, there's not a lot of positive words in that message. Uh, but luckily, it ends with the phrase, build and plant. And if you've been at this church for more than two years, you've probably been familiar with the phrase, build and plant, which is actually where our build and plant um, motivation of, of, you know, where we're going to go with it, and, and God putting it on Brother Nick's heart, and Pastor Adam's heart of this build and plant. So, Kind of cool to see those cross paths that way. But we're going to talk about this idea of build and plant. Um, but to, to go back to the, the culture of Jeremiah and the, the culture that Jeremiah is living in and the culture of the people there, um, God gives him one of his first messages to his people. And he says, um, he sums up all of all of his people kind of in one two sentences he says for my people have committed two sins and the first sin that they've committed is they have forsaken me the spring of living water and the second sin was they went and dug their own cisterns that were broken and could not hold water now a cistern was something they would use as another form to to gain to have water they would basically dig a big hole in the ground and they would line it with limestone so that it wouldn't leak and when the rains came it would fill up with water and so Jesus or God tells his people my people have forsaken me the spring of living water and their second sin was that they went and dug their own cisterns 
that were broken and could not hold water. And so that is the image we get of God's people during this time, that not only have they forsaken God, but they've gone and tried to find a replacement for him. And so they've left God, and they want something else. They want something to fill that void in their hearts and go in and find it through either idols or whatever that may be. And so God gives the people of Jerusalem what's called a conditional prophecy. Now, a conditional prophecy is based off of the people's response of how the prophecy is going to unfold. For example, in Jonah, you know, God tells Nineveh, if you do not repent, you will be destroyed and you will be punished. Now, Nineveh repents, and, or if you repent, you will be forgiven. And Nineveh repents and is spared. So the prophecy is based off of how the people are going to respond. It's going to unfold based off of what they do. So if they don't repent, they will be punished. But if they do, they will be forgiven. And so he gives them this prophecy, but the people of Jerusalem ignore it. And that's why we see those six verbs that come in. And those six verbs of this passage actually outline the whole book of Jeremiah. We see in each different phase of this book, because the people don't turn back, they don't turn to God and repent. They continue to live in sin and forsake him. And so he brings in the Babylonian nation to destroy them and punish them. So they destroy Jerusalem. They take all the people captive and they exile them back to Babylon. And so God's people are taken from their home. They're taken from this big, mighty, nasty nation that Habakkuk talks about. And they're taken to Babylon. And so they're living in stress. They're living in fear. They're living in pain and suffering because they chose to stay with those broken cisterns instead of the spring of living water. They chose to not repent and turn from their ways. And so God, in turn, punished them for that. And so while they're living in captivity in the Babylonian nation, we get to the part of Jeremiah in chapter 29, and it's in chapters 29 through 33, for those of you who want to continue this on at home. Chapters 29 through 33 are the restoration, is the restoration part of Jeremiah. It's the build and plant section of this book. And so while God's people are in exile, you are probably very familiar with chapter 29, verse 11. For, the note, for you know I, the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you. Right, we've all heard this verse before, and it's important to know the audience that Jesus or God is telling this group to, that he's telling his people this in the midst of their pain and their suffering because of their disobedience. And so that that brings a little more light to that verse and how powerful it is. Um, But God promises his people two types of peace, and those two types of peace are what we're going to talk about uh, in this message today. And so... Again, we have an outward piece of conflict and war, a lack of, that we understand. But then, like I said, the Bible gets at a lot more than that. We talk about this inward peace that God gives. And this inward peace could be described as the fruit of the faithful to God. And so what we receive by being faithful to God is this inner 
peace within us that's, that makes us complete, it makes us whole, it makes us content and satisfied. Um, and so God says, again, that he is going to not only do all the other four verbs to them, which he's already done, but he's going to build and plant them. And if you've read the book of Nehemiah or Ezra, you see that God uses those men to move God's people out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem. And so God tells them that he's going to bring them back to their homeland and he's going to rebuild the city and they're going to plant in the land and prosper. And so everything will be restored. Everything on the outward will be restored. They'll have their homes back. They'll have their communities back. They'll have a wall to protect them. They'll have safety. They'll have security. But more than that, they will plant as well. They will be prosperous in the land. That they will continue on like they were before. So God's going to restore all of their outward peace. And this is what he promises them during their time in exile. But God doesn't stop there. He gives them another promise of restoration. And this promise of restoration is more of a far view prophecy. Where when near view is something that's going to happen in their lifetime. Like they're going to be restored back to the city of Jerusalem. This far view prophecy is something that's going to bring peace within. And so God is planning on fully restoring his people through outwardly and inwardly. But what I want to focus on today is inward peace. Because we're never guaranteed outward peace in this life. God can bless us with that when he chooses to, but it's never a guarantee. What I want to talk about today is having inward peace during this time of living the Christian life, of, you know, so much stress going on, the holidays are coming up, you know the hustle and the bustle of all that, we've got a lot on our plates, it's just a busy time of year, and if we're not careful, we can take our eyes off of God and on to other things. And so, as I'm reading this passage, um, and reading this book, you know, it's so easy to be the people, to, to look at God's people in the southern kingdom and go, man, y'all are some fools. Like, God is faithful to you nonstop. He's been faithful to your father and his father and his father and his father, but yet you constantly leave him for other things all the time. Like, even God says in, tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2, he says, what fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? Did they not remember that I was the one who rescued them out of Egypt? That I, re- I took them into the wilderness and I rescued them from that and put them in a land flowing with milk and honey? That, that I have provided for your people, these people, for generations, but yet you constantly try to leave me. And that's what God tells Jeremiah to tell to those people. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me. And like in our scripture reading today out of Hosea chapter 11, we see that as a beautiful picture of God's relationship with his people. That he is a father taking care of a child who is constantly turning away from him. Even though he is trying to do nothing but bless and love and take care of him. That's the relationship we get. 
And so as I'm reading this passage, it's like, man, how are they doing this over and over and over? You know, they call it the wheel in the Old Testament, the wheel of disobedience. It's you have faithfulness, and then you have disobedience, and then you're punished, and then there's repentance, and then there's faithfulness again, and then there's disobedience, and then punishment, and, and it just keeps going around and around and around, generation after generation in the Old Testament. And so God has a plan to fix all of that. He promises a new covenant, a new covenant that he is going to make with his people. It's not going to be like the first covenant. It's going to be different. It's not going to be written on tablets of stone, but it's going to be written on our hearts. And as I read this passage, again, as I, as I think about the people and it's like, man, how, how could y'all just leave God like that when he's been so faithful to you? But then I started to pray about it in my own life and God just put his finger right on my heart and say, well, you do that too. You do that too. Look at all the things I've done for you. Look at all the ways I've blessed you, but look at all these things in your life, whether what it is, whether it's career, whether it's hobbies, whether it's relationships, whether it's a sin habit. Look at all these things I've done for you, but yet you run to those things so many times instead of me. And I got so convicted because it's easy to point the finger at the people in Jerusalem, but it's hard for us to realize that's us, that that is our nature too. We're no different from them. And so I want to talk about this new covenant. It says in uh, chapter 31, verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, Well, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one, uh, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them, to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It's my favorite part. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You know, the word iniquity in, in the Old Testament translates to being bent or crooked. And the word sin translates to, to fail, to miss the mark. And so iniquity plays a role into sin. So our being born into sin in this life, we come bent and crooked. We have the desire in our hearts to disobey everything that God tells us not to do. We have that desire in our hearts. We come into this world bent or crooked. And because of that iniquity, it will lead us to be disobedient to God and fail at doing what he wants us to do. Fail at obeying his laws, and we call that sin. And when we do that, we, we, we do what's called a transgression, where we had this covenant with God that we would do, hold up our end of the bargain, and now we have gone back on our covenant, and we've transgressed against Him. And this new covenant is going to forgive our iniquity and remember our sins and our failures no more. And this is a far-view prophecy given to God's people. 
that, you know what, I'm giving you this prophecy of that's near, that it's coming in your lifetime, that you will be restored completely from Babylon. You will have your cities rebuilt. You will prosper in the land. But I'm going to do something else. And it's probably not going to happen. It's not going to happen in your lifetime, but it will happen. I'm going to make a new covenant with my people to fix this sin problem, to fix this wheel of disobedience in my people's hearts. Because my law is no longer going to be on a tablet. It's going to be written on your heart. And those of you who've read your Bibles and you know in the New Testament, he then sacrifices his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven of that and one day spend an eternity in heaven with him. And you know, the Bible says in John chapter 3, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, because Jesus tells a man named Nicodemus, who was the, the best of the best, scholar among scholars of the Bible, and he looks him dead in the eye and says, you will not go to heaven unless you were born again. He told the most seemingly pure man in the whole city, you will not see the kingdom of God unless you were born again, unless you have faith. But Jesus tells him, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That is the only reason we get in scripture of why God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us, is his love for us. And Paul explains it very well in Ephesians chapter 2 by saying it is a gift from God. It's not a trophy. It's not a paycheck. It's a gift. And thankfully, we don't earn gifts because if y'all are honest with yourselves, we probably wouldn't get much for Christmas this year. And so it is a gift. You give a gift out of love that you have for someone. They didn't earn it. It's got nothing to do with what they've done. It's got everything to do with your love for that person. And so you give them that. And that's all it's about. And the salvation is like that. Salvation is not a paycheck that you earn from your hard work. And it's not a trophy that you can tote around and brag about to other people who don't have it. Salvation is a gift given to you through this new covenant that God's making with his people and all of mankind for us. On the sole fact that he loves us. That's the only reason. is because God loved you. So he gave his one and only son, Jesus. And this new covenant is the only chance that we have at inward peace. Partaking in this new covenant is the only chance at finding real inward peace in this life. Because so often we will go and grab and go to all those broken cisterns in our life, but end up and wonder why we're left thirsty. Wonder why we're not replenished. Because the whole time we had access to the spring of living water. And like Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, you drink from this well and you'll never be thirsty again. You will never feel thirsty again. You know, I was um, on a mission trip a few years ago and I went two years in a row. Um, It's called Beach Reach. And what Beach Reach did was we would go down to Panama City, Florida, and we would go during spring break. So all the college people would come and it, just party it up for a whole week. Drinking and all kinds of things. Right? You see a lot on this mission trip. We had to go through trainings and all kind of stuff. It was hardcore. But 
we would provide free van rides and a free pancake breakfast. And on the van rides, we would get them from one place to the next, no charge. And during that van ride, you would try your best to share the gospel with this person. And we would do it from 9 o'clock at night to 3 o'clock in the morning. And again, it really tests your patience as well. When you hit 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and you've dealt with drunk people for the last five hours, you're like, Lord, give me strength. <laughs> give me strength. And you really, I mean, it is a challenge. It, is, it was a hard mission trip. I mean, it wears you out physically, mentally, emotionally, because you just see all this in front of you. But you know the saying goes that the darker the room is, the brighter the light is. And let me tell you, the gospel shone so bright in that place. It was the brightest light because of how dark that place was. And to see people that we got a chance to share the gospel with that actually took part in that, and to see just them understand it, and you see the fullness in their eyes of just, wow. I mean, it was so powerful. I, it was one of my greatest experiences in my Christian walk. And I'm so grateful to God that I had the opportunity to go down there and do that. But that whole week I would be there, I would look around all these people that were supposed to be having the time of their life, and they've got all these bars and the beach and all these fun things to do, and they're just partying the whole week, and you got nothing else going on. And it's seemingly, it's supposed to be the best time of the year. It's supposed to be awesome, something they look forward to all year. But as I looked across that sea of people or in the van rides, they looked like they were having fun. But it, it was almost, it was supernatural almost because when you looked in their eyes, they were empty and, and unsatisfied. And it, it, it was almost depressing to be around it because it was just so empty because they were looking for something to fill this hole in their heart, but it wasn't working. And they were trying all these different things, and just you could see the depression and the emptiness in their eyes. It broke my heart. And honestly, when those people responded to the gospel, it, it was just so powerful, so moving to see God work in a dark place like that. But that's how we look. You know, I heard the saying from an old pastor that we all have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And we try to fill that hole with all kinds of things, nonstop. But if you don't fill that God-shaped hole in your life with God, it'll never be filled. It'll never be filled. No matter what you cram in there, it will never fill. And so often, we look like the people of Jerusalem. Where we have the spring of living water right here that we have access to. But we turn our backs on it and we try to find all these other things instead of God. And we commit those two sins in our lives over and over again. And what's the funny part of that is not funny. The interesting part of that is the more we try to grasp on to those broken cisterns, the more empty you feel. And so a great way to assess your own heart is ask yourself, am I content with my life? Am I content with the things in my life? Am I, do I feel whole? Do I feel complete? Or, or do I feel empty? And, and, or do I feel like I always am needing more of something because it's not satisfying me? 
Because that will tell you whether or not you're taken from the fountain of living water or, your, or broken cisterns. Because you know what? You can pour rain. There could be the heaviest rain you've ever seen come down. And that cistern will fill up all the way to the top. And you're thinking, man, this is great. I don't even need that spring of living water. I got all this. And I dug it. This is all, I'm providing for myself right now. I'm taking care of me. I don't need you, God. But sure enough, give it time. That cistern that's broken, that water all will drain right out, leaving you empty and thirsty again. And that water in that cistern, not only is that cistern broken, but it's not living water. You notice the text says that. The text doesn't say that it can't hold living water. It just says water. And you see Jesus says that my spring is living water. Because when you drink from this, you never thirst again. Nothing will satisfy you like me. Nothing will make you feel whole like the love that I give to you. And so if you want to have peace in this life, if you want to have inward peace, because look, we're not guaranteed outward peace. We're not guaranteed lack of free from conflict our whole life. I don't have to tell you guys in 2020, life is hard. And I'm about ready for this year to be over with, to be honest. But if you follow Jesus faithfully, you are guaranteed inward peace because that is the fruit that we receive from being faithful to God. That inner peace that you hold on to is because you are clinging to God. So you know what? No matter what goes on in your life, whether your finances are awful, whether you're struggling with some pet sin, or you're about to lose your job, or you lose a family member, you cling to God and you will have peace in those moments. Because his love for you endures forever. And there is nothing in this life that will ever satisfy you the way God's love will. Nothing. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ today and you've come here and you've, you're wondering, and you, why do I feel empty? Why do I never feel satisfied? It's through this new covenant that God made with his people in Jerusalem that he made available for us. Because there's nothing in this life that you can find that will satisfy you like the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing. In a relationship with Him. And those of you who are Christians, what are those broken cisterns in your life that you keep running to instead of Jesus? That you keep going to always leaving you feeling empty and thirsty? What are those things in your life? We all have them. If we're honest, we all do. But the key to having peace in this life, having peace in, in the middle of a storm, Jesus was asleep in a storm that was so bad, a man who spent his whole life on the water as a fisherman was terrified. And Jesus was asleep. Only true peace in this life is found in a relationship with Jesus. We have to cling to Him. Because when we don't do that, you're always going to live feeling empty. Always. And so what are those things in your life? And you know, this is one of the greatest passages, I think, for getting us ready for the Christmas season. 
Because this is the beginning of the Christmas story right here. God looked at his sinful, broken people and said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to create a new, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people that's going to fix this sin problem. I'm going to put my law within their hearts and they will all know me and I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There is nothing like the love of God. And the question I always ask that, I, that, that God showed me in this text was, think about those broken cisterns in your life. Think about those things that you go to other than God. Do they ever love you back? All the time that you invest in them, all the things that you put into them, work or hobbies or whatever that may be, does it ever love you back? And a better question is, does it love you back the way God does? And I can tell you the answer is no. There is no love in your life than the love of God because God knows every tiny detail about us. He sees our flaws. He sees our weaknesses. He sees all the sinful thoughts we have. He sees all the things we do in secret. He sees it all. And His love for us never changes. His love for us endures forever. True peace is only found in this new covenant. True peace, true inward peace in our life is only found through a relationship with Jesus Christ and nowhere else. You can, we can be like these people in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem trying to dig out our own cisterns, trying to find other things in our life that are better. And they may fill you up for a little bit, you may be thir- you, I mean, you may have your thirst quenched because, again, it's, a, it's leaking water. It may not happen overnight, but give it time, and it will always leave you empty and wanting more. But the love that God has for us fully satisfies us, no matter what we go through.